0: Design is more important than ever before. There are so many websites being created every day, and it's not enough to differentiate your product or your website with rock-solid engineering. Your product has to be beautiful and intuitive and tested for usability. You don't want all of the hard work of the product and the engineering teams to go to waste. So on this episode, the focus is design. Tracy Osborne is the creator of Wedding Lovely, a beautifully designed two-sided marketplace website where people who are getting married connect with wedding vendors. Today, Tracy discusses design for non-designers. Whether you are an engineer or a marketer or a business analyst, just learning a few simple tactics about design can take you so far. Today, we will discuss these tactics and the story of Wedding Lovely and some other projects that Tracy is involved in. Tracy Osborne is a developer, designer, and entrepreneur. Tracy, welcome to Software Engineering Daily.
1: Thank you. You kind of messed that up a little bit because I don't put entrepreneur. I put entrepreneur, which I find is a lot more <laughs> what I do. Oh,
0: you know, I was totally cribbing it from the fluent conference. Oh, where they must have changed that be, on me.
1: More professional. Yeah.
0: It, it, this is how the game of telephone can work.
1: I know. Uh, I got to go yell okay. at them now because it's very important to me. I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm an entrepreneur. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for clarifying that. Um, and at Fluent, you're actually going to be talking about design for non-designers. So since I mentioned Fluent, I figured I might as well mention your talk. Um, But Fluent is, you know, mostly attended by engineers, I believe at least. Why is design important to engineers?
1: You know, I... I started out as a designer and I picked up programming and now I do both on my startup and everything else that I do. Uh, and I feel that very strongly that it can happen the other way, that engineers and developers and people who are building things behind the scenes at some point are going to need to design something. It's funny because I when preparing for the, this talk, I actually just gave um, a the talk for the first time last weekend at Pi Tennessee, testing out my content before moving on to Fluent, which is going to be probably the biggest conference I've done so far. And I twi- I tweeted to d- asking developers if they can give me any kind of big tip that they would really recommend when it comes to designing from a developer's point of view. And two separate people responded saying, "Don't design, hire a designer." I was like, oh, come on. Like, that's not very fair because people, you know, even if you are just working on open source work or you create a little app, you know, you're probably going to have to at some point create a app web page or a widget or anything like that. Um, And, you know, you might as well learn a little bit about all the disciplines, a little bit about design. Um, That's really what my talk is about. It's just kind of the basics. So you have a little bit of, of, you know, knowledge. So you don't have to hire someone to do something simple.
0: There are certain principles within software engineering that sometimes get referred to as software design. Is this type of design related to the type of design that you are going to be exploring in your talk?
1: There are so many different... like terms for design, you know, and that's actually the first one of the first slides I do. And there's all the different types of design, What they call about interactive design and UX design and UI design and visual design. And I'm blanking on everything else, but probably software design falls into that. And what I've been working on is really, I just call it design. I haven't worked at a big company where things get uh, put into the little tiny categories. So by design, I mean, just Whatever you're working on and whatever you're quote unquote designing, how do you, A, make it look semi good? And B, most importantly, is how do you make it work well? And uh, because that's arguably more important than the visual design. Mm.
0: Okay, so I want to get a feeling for some of your design principles. And in order to do that, I think we should talk about Wedding Lovely, which is a company you built, uh, a website you built. You've written a ton about it. I read a lot of your blog yeah. posts; they were super interesting. Um, and I was, it was so interesting because I was writing this, uh, this outline in preparation for our interview, and uh, I was, you know, I was like thinking, okay, like, oh, it would be great to talk about Wedding Lovely as a case study and how Tracy thinks about design. And then I read that there was a blog post that you had actually already written that was breaking down Wedding Lovely as a case study. <laughs> so. So first, like, before we dive into the uh, engineering and design aspects of Wedding Lovely, what is the the offering of the company?
1: Okay. It's funny. That blog post that you just referenced, the case study, was written yesterday. So you have very good timing. <laughs> um, so in terms of principles of design... Uh, ju- Just-in-time preparation. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, in terms of principle design, principles of design, um, visually, the one of the... The biggest things you can do is just pay attention to clutter. And every like basic principle, you break it down when you talk about the grid and you talk about the amount of colors and amount, the amount of fonts. A lot of people will, will have written blog posts and books in terms of how to become a good designer – and it really, all of it comes down to clutter because when things are misaligned, when there's a billion colors, when there's a billion, you know, when there's not a billion colors, but all the colors are really bright, uh, when you have a lot of different fonts or when you use a display font that has lots of little, like, uh, you know, when I make display fonts, is like those crazy fonts that you think about when you're using like MS paint or something like that, like old things, like they're very cluttery fonts. There's lots of things going on with it. All these things come down to clutter and it's, nice right now that clean classic like uh, very clean flat design is quite the trend that's been going on for the last few years which is awesome because not only is clean and uh, minimal design easier to do as compared to the designs of you know the late 90s early 2000s where their things had drop shadows and little uh the buttons were all beveled and had little outlines and all these crazy things um that Looks very cluttery. That's definitely not something that people like anymore. Design flat design is easier, and flat design, and, and by flat design, I mean just basically uncluttered, clean design is so metro, much easier
0: to use. You're talking about the metro design. The I think that's what Microsoft calls it. <laughs> Goog, Goog, Google Google calls it uh, what is it? Um, oh, what is their name for the flat design? Yeah, uh, whatever it is.
1: Yeah, flat letters. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and things don't have to be completely flat, because I know a lot of people had a lot of problems with Metro when it first came out, because when things are flat, it's a little harder to see what things what is interactive. Uh, I'm actually on Dribbble right now, just was browsing it before this session, and I noticed that the buttons, they look flat, but there's a very subtle gradient there. So there is ways of making something look very clean and classic, and Dribbble has a really good design while still adding a little bit of usability by making buttons a little bit 3D, but it's not like it used to be. So, hmm. you know, and then every other, like, white space is very controversial. Uh, you know, it's a really good way of cleaning up clutter just by adding a lot of white space and letting elements breathe. But when I gave my talk at PyTennessee, someone came up with me uh, with a redesign, I believe, of the Python PyPI. I think it was for that. And they have a redesign, and there's a nice big banner at the top that's really For me, originally, I I looked at it, I'm like, ooh, white space, but it became a little unusable because then there was this giant blank space, which also bothered people. So it can be kind of controversial depending on how you do it. But generally, most people design things that are much too close together, which adds a lot of visual clutter because everything kind of melds together. And just by opening Mm. up the spacing and just paying attention to clutter in general can make designs a lot better.
0: Well, so in with the fonts, Google Material is the is the name that I had at the tip of my okay. tongue that I couldn't remember. By the way, but so d- and there was this movement from the the sort of like three dimensional ish icons to the flatness of the icons. Mm-hmm. Was that literally because the three dimensionalism was like yet another little bit of processing that our brain had to do, and the two D element is it like a notion of simplification or was this was it more like just like a cult following and we thought like <laughs> oh flat flat is new and this is cool so and then everybody else just 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 piled on like a bandwagon yeah
1: probably a little bit of both I mean somewhere I, one of the things I need to do and improve my talk and I'll talk about this at fluent um, is a little bit more in terms of uh, actual studies and actual you know usability studies or whatnot that people have done that actually proves that flat in cases will do better than say crazy 3dness because it's probably a little bit quicker to to view when you see something flat maybe. I need I need to actually look it up. I haven't looked it up. I know they're out there and I haven't I just don't have anything in my head. Uh but also, you know, people are designers are kind of herd animals and they all follow each other and I'm sure someone did something really gorgeous and everyone swarmed upon it uh and now things that are 3d and crazy drop shadows and everything all the things that apple did back in the day are now so passe they look very old-fashioned um makes your website look like it was designed you know 10 years ago uh And so that's why it's kind of nice to follow these trends, because when something looks old, it kind of is not like a good feeling for the users that come to your website. You know, they kind of look at that and they go, oh, should I trust this? Their website looks old and old fashioned instead of like these new fancy websites.
0: Mm, That's absolutely true. So there is. So even if it is a herd mentality, there's a well-reasoned herd mentality.
1: Yeah. And Uh, for beginners, I feel like following the herd is totally fine. Don't try to break out of the box and do something on your own, because when you're, you know, if you are designing something for the very first time, to see how other people are doing things first, um, follow that, and just makes things easier than say starting from scratch.
0: Mm, okay, that sounds like a great principle, uh, and I will definitely ask you about some more principles. <laughs> um, but I do want to talk about this case study. So, so Wedding Lovely, you just wrote the case study about it. So, what what is Wedding Lovely?
1: Yeah, Wedding Lovely is the startup I I founded about six years ago. Um, I actually taught myself Python programming with it, and it was my side project. And I released it to the world, and it started taking off. And so I've, over the last six years, turned into my startup and uh, my full-time job. So Wedding Lovely is a wedding vendor marketplace. Uh, I particularly love working with small, business, small businesses and supporting them. And that's how this whole thing started. Because I was like, oh, how can I support people who are designing wedding invitations from home? So it starts. there's a whole vendor part where I help people find the vendors to work with on their wedding. Uh, I also built a planning app so someone who's getting married can sign up, sign up their spouse and their planner, um, and kind of keep track and plan their wedding under... Um, the Wedding Lovely planning guide. So, two okay. pieces.
0: Right. And when you started Wedding Lovely, I imagine that you were assessing the competition. This was like six years ago, I guess. So, <laughs> so probably, you know, this is kind of like the inflection point to web between web 1.0 and web 2.0, or a little beyond that, I guess. Um, maybe, depending on how you define those things. But, certainly a shift in design was happening on, on the web. And I think this was like an opera. This was a time where there was a big opportunity in making a site that was in terms of raw functionality was maybe, uh, you know, as good as another site, but if you had better design, mm-hmm. you could really get a leg up and just, and just crush the competition. So when you were assessing the other wedding websites around this time, what were the design mistakes that you saw these other websites repeatedly making?
1: I think it's uh, one thing I also want to mention. When I first started the design, um, anyone listening to this podcast, if you search for Swiss Miss, which is a design blog, um, and Wedding Invite Love, which is my first, uh, which is the f- Wedding Lovely is a collection of different directories, and weddinginvitelove.com was the first one I launched. Um, this is two two weeks after launch. I was covered by this design blog, you can see design as it was at the time. And that design, I will say, it looks good because you know, my background is design. I can I can design something pretty quick. I was being totally lazy on that. It took me. It, it was it's a very flat design. It looks very modern because it's just flat. It's because I didn't put any in any of these like, you know, things that would take time like gradients and and all that into this design. Uh, and that was just me winding this website out ASAP so I just made things flat and I just like got a, like a color scheme and I launched it as fast as possible and I got lucky that I kind of hit the beginning of this trend of moving on from crazy gradients and whatnot um, into flat design So if you want to take a look of how wedding Event Love looked then um, and you can look at it now it's pretty they're pretty similar but they're all um, just because I hit that trend uh, but they've it's definitely evolved significantly over the years. Um, so, that aside, uh, I want to talk about uh, again, design isn't just how things are, how things look, it's also how things work. And the, one of the biggest reasons why I launched Wedding Invite Love and started working on this is that I looked at the existing websites of Wedding Wire and The Knot, and I just hated how they did things. Uh, how hard it was to like work with a vendor, how it hides the fact that you you know, their website and emails and they require you to go through their system. Um, how the pictures of the vendors were really small and it was hard to see that like pictures of their work. Like everything I was just like, you know what? I can make a better website. I can make something that is more useful to someone than these ex- established players. Uh, so that was the other main reason why I launched the websites.
0: Okay. And this was, I guess, also around the time where mobile um, importance was ramping up or becoming widely understood. So, are there design decisions that are important to know as a mobile if you're developing from the standpoint of a mobile first uh, perspective, or maybe maybe uh, you know when people are shopping for weddings, uh, they're doing this is like mm-hmm. this is like a desktop activity. Um, but how does mobile factor into how you think about design?
1: I um, I love the mobile for- first philosophy. I will admit that I haven't done it myself. Uh, I recommend anyone who's jumping into design to look at bootstrap. And I think foundation also these are two different design frameworks. I use it in wedding lovely and hopefully it should be pretty hidden because um, any design I do. Also, I have a book series called Hello Web App. Um, Both the Hello Web App website and Wedding Lovely websites, both things I've done myself, are both run on Bootstrap. And Bootstrap gives me a framework, includes uh, ability for the website to automatically kind of reformat itself so it looks good on mobile. Uh, So I don't have to think about it because I don't have a lot of time when I'm working for myself. I'm not like the designer. I'm also a designer, the developer, the marketer, a salesperson. So whatever sure. shortcuts I can do, like using bootstrap and then automatically have an okay looking design uh, by using bootstrap and just following its defaults, um, then it's good. Yeah.
0: Did people do most of their wedding shopping from the desktop?
1: They did, but I know that weddings, um, mobile stuff in weddings is huge now because a lot of people just sit on the couch, you're watching TV, you're planning your wedding, you're on your phone, not your computer. So wedding apps, um, dedicated wedding apps are big. Um, not to mention that Google will penalize your site nowadays if you don't have one that oh. works well in mobile. So it's very important to at least have something that that resizes and doesn't just do the giant web page mm. in your tiny phone okay. screen.
0: Right. Okay. So Wedding Lovely, it's this combination of several different wedding sites that you created. And there's one for wedding cake, there's one for wedding mm-hmm. photography, for florists, and so on, DJs. And each of these wedding verticals is a two-sided marketplace between vendors in one in the vertical and the wedding customers. Yes. So Sometimes, when a product is being designed for multiple groups of people, it can be hard to satisfy both parties. What were the challenges to satisfying both the wedding customers and the vendors?
1: Uh, I want, I'll answer that in just a second. But one thing I want to point out, um, if you looked at, I have uh, eight separate individual directories all dedicated to a vertical um, and they all have identical layouts, but I differentiate them by having a a different logo, but all the logos in the same font, but a different color scheme. And the color scheme is the one way I differentiate these sites while still keeping it easy for me as a designer to upkeep everything by not having a different design for each of these individual eight sites. So I think that's cool. I'm pretty proud of my stack that I did that. Um, but in terms of designing for both these sides, um, you know, it's the nice thing about having a good looking, clean design is that, I mean, visually, that both people are pretty happy with that. I have kind of two different, the directories that I built are definitely, uh, I want users to to look at the directories and and think they're, you know, nicely designed and ergo visit these vendors. And they usually come to the directories through SEO, um, through Google. But the planning guide is my way of like shuttling customers to the vendors I work with in a more direct manner. So if someone signs up for planning, they get this whole dashboard that walks them through planning their wedding and helps them out with, say, how to find a photographer. And in that photographer page, I'd say, oh, also here's all these photographers I work with in wedding lovely. So it's a completely different system. Um, they're both very similar looking because my my sense, my style is is, I kind of keep it the same between both kind of. Um, Mm. But it does help the fact that I have basically the two sides of the business and there is a bit of a divide in between the two. So I can develop them a little bit differently because vendors don't really Mm. see the dash, excuse me, the planning guide very well. Um, They can sign up and take a look at it if they want. But really, vendors see the public facing directories, whereas my engaged users I work with um, see the internal dashboard planning guide.
0: Okay, so the two sides of the marketplace use fairly segregated platforms.
1: Ish. I mean, there's still a lot of people coming through, again, for SEO and through Google, coming to um, the vendor guides, but it does help that I have also uh, a different set of users I work with. Wedding
0: Lovely is a large system. You know, it spans several different sites. You know, you've got directories for each of these sites. So, even though you can automate a lot of it, there are always edge cases, especially in a big two-sided marketplace. Uh, you know, we we did a show about Hired.com recently, um, and you know, Hired is like this big two-sided marketplace, and there's so many little edge cases that come up <laughs> when you're dealing with two sides of you know human-driven marketplaces. So what are the kinds of things, like, how do you automate, you know, if you you say you can automate a lot of it, like, how do you avoid putting a human in the loop in, in so many of these little edge
1: cases? Yeah. So it's funny how I, I, again, I taught myself how to code when building Wedding Lovely. So I created one individual directory. This is going to be not quite answering your question, but I think you'll find this fascinating because it's it's fun history. Uh, I created my first directory and then I wanted to create one. The first one was for imitation designers. I wanted to create one for wedding planners. And I didn't have the skills to extend my project so it could run two different websites. So I did the easy thing and I got permission for a few smart people who just said, um, I just cloned my project and then I had two projects. And I had duplicate templates and duplicate views on both. And I cloned it for the third one for photographers. I cloned it for the fourth one for venues. So it was kind of like, I knew I was going to be in trouble in the future, but it was like the fastest way for me to launch these websites at the beginning. So eventually I had to, uh, you know, I had to help, I had to get some help from really smart people. And like, how do I create a system that can run all these websites? Now, Wedding Lovely is just one project. Um, Once it's, of views running everything one set of urls um, templates i have some individual templates that can i can uh push onto the individual websites but generally they all share the same templates Um, everyone shares the same application form everyone shares the same uh sign up user flow so that makes things so much easier than it used to be before because i would have to copy paste my changes between every single project uh it sounds ridiculous now that i know better uh, so the fact that it's all in one system, um, the planning guide, all the vendor templates are also the same templates that will show up onto the public SEO directories. Uh, so I can make a change in one area or I can set up something automatic where like uh, by automatic, I mean, I have a lot of things like when someone signs up for Wedding Lovely, it signs up for MailChimp, which I have this whole email series that walks people through the pieces of Wedding Lovely. So it keeps the people I work with engage. Same thing goes for the user side. Um, I have, there's a whole blog component also in Wedding Lovely, which is a huge piece of the business because I get a lot of people. Uh, well, the blog is really there so I can make the vendors I work with happy because they have a lot of work they want to showcase and they can put on my blog. And then my blog gets SEO um, authority. And then we get a lot of users coming to the blog and then goes through to the rest of our directories. So I get free content for all the vendors I work with. But by showcasing their content, it also makes them super happy with Wedding Lovely. It's just like a win-win-win situation. And that ties into everything else too because when a vendor... Uh, publishes a post on wedding lovely me or my part-time assistant just grab the information for that I put into a form that's on the admin page I basically have this little CMS um, and that does that sends out an email to the vendor it adds their the blog post to our system because they're on two different systems the blog is on WordPress um, just because I needed to have like a very professional blog and WordPress has all built in um, but by using this one form it does a Bunch of things behind the scene for what I Love Life. So I don't have to do a lot of things manually. Uh, send out all these notifications, make sure their profile is updated. So there's lots of little things that have been built in to make things easier. Uh, but the biggest thing that helps my life is the fact that I only have one set of templates that run everything and one set of piece of code. Okay.
0: What was something counterintuitive that you learned about designing for people who are doing wedding shopping?
1: <laughs> uh, one of the, I it's not really, des- I guess it's designed in terms of how things work. Um, so I'm not going to talk about visual designs, but when building this Swiss website, the biggest the thing is um, a lot of people jump into the weddings industry because they say, oh, this person is spending $20,000 uh, on their wedding. So I'm going to build this app that costs $100. And that's just a fraction of what they're paying. And people are going to jump into here and I'll make a bunch of money. Uh, but people who are planning their wedding and it costs a lot of money, and they're paying you know $10,000 to a venue and all that. Wherever they can save money, they will. So my planning guide used to be a paid product. And even though it was Super cheap. It was like eight bucks per month or like uh, 30 bucks per year or something like that. And even though the planning guide would arguably save people a ton of time, arguably could save them a ton of money by consolidating everything uh, and also time is money. No, pe- they're like, well, why would I pay for this if I could just find all this free information online, even though it would take them a hell of a lot more time to do that? And by saying, I'm going to save money by not paying for Wedding Lovely. It's kind of a psychological good thing. Like, it's good, like, oh, I'm saving money here. So therefore, I can pay money over there. Um, what I'm trying to say is that it's actually really hard to sell to people who are getting married. Um, you know, you have mm. to, like, really, really do something, like, kind of awesome and save people a ton of time. Because if you're only marginally better than all the free information that's on the internet, um, someone's not going to pay for your app just because they're paying a lot of money. Um, you have to really work at it. So a lot, I find so many people jump into wedding industry thinking they're gonna make a bunch of money because people are just supposedly throwing money about, and that's not how it's going. That's not how it works. Mm. So my I planning see. guide is free now. Uh, <laughs> I took that out and made it free. And now I just, I just focus on monetization on the fender side.
0: Okay. Do you do a B testing to judge what kinds of designs are, important or higher value or better received uh
1: i think A/B testing is extremely important because i'm doing everything i haven't had the time because it does take time uh when i'm working at wedding lovely because i'm doing every single like marketing sales development etc i have to i only have time to go with my gut and i know that is not the best decision i know that there are A/B testing uh apps out there that make things a lot easier. I used to use one that was really complicated about seven years ago at my old job, my one and only job I've ever run. I was in charge of doing all the AB and multivariate tests. And it's fascinating because I would create a new design for one of the websites that this this company ran, and it would look gorgeous. And it looks like it, it implemented all like the best usability, you know, Things that people recommend, like making the form easy to use and nice big fonts and easy, you know, the contents better. And we would A/B test it, and it would do worse. And it's like Mm. this heartbreaking, like feeling that you spent all this time creating a better looking design, and yet it was doing worse. So that's A/B testing is important because sometimes instincts can be wrong.
0: You know, I what I find, I, I think that the the greater lesson is not. I mean, it's not necessarily the. You have to A-B test. It's more like, the I find that the lesson of A-B testing is more like your intuition is going to lie to you all <laughs> yeah. the time and you have to be metrics driven because there's no choice because literally there's no choice. You know, y- you can you can theorize all you want about what's going to perform well and what won't. Like I can tell you right now, like the, the, the no- so like for example, the number one podcast that we've done um, on software engineering, uh daily is is uh was totally unexpected that that it would be so popular. It's this the, this episode about dwarf fortress, which is this what I thought oh, was just I love this that extremely game. there you go. Yeah. That's that's why. <laughs> it, and that it's and it's like it it follows like a perfect power law distribution, how much more po- popular this episode is than than every other episode and it's kind of crazy and it was totally counterintuitive and that's not necessarily a design thing it's not necessarily something that we would be able to a b test but um it it just goes to show (laughs) you that the only way to figure out what the people actually want is to try things experiment yeah throw it at the wall and compare metrics.
1: Yeah, I mean, as a beginning designer, you know, A-B testing might be really fascinating because you, you can see, you can get actual data about what things working, what things don't. Um, that said, it does take time and you have to wait for A-B tests to reach uh, an appropriate, because sometimes you'll, you'll run an A-B test and the next day, you'll have something that looks significant. It'll be like, oh, 20% much better. And then the frameworks that run these A-B tests, which I can't remember the name right now. I think it's, Google Web Optimizer. And if you have Optimizely. Uh,
0: there's optimizely. There.
1: Yeah, there's probably a whole bunch of them out there. Ap- They'll Optimize. Yeah. They have a whole like confidence indicator. And the confidence indicator like for most of these will will show that's high confidence at the beginning. And you might be like, oh cool, you know, I finished this A B test in two days and it's already confident. Boom, I'll I'll add it in. And then if you just leave it for like a week, the confidence will go down, which is very frustrating. It's very counterintuitive when you're trying these A-B tests. So they take a lot of time. I think they're very important, uh, but they take a lot of time.
0: Okay. So let's talk about learning to code. Wedding Lovely was the product of an effort that you made in 2011 to learn to code with Python and Django. And we have a number of listeners who are learning to code. So I would like to get a little more insight on this. Like, was this the first app that you worked on? Or did you like, was it literally the first app you worked on? Or did you do some tutorials first? Or what was your experience learning to code around this? (laughs)
1: Um, The longer story is I actually went into college for computer science because I built websites when I was in high school. And this is like frames, uh, built HTML framed websites. And I was like, boom, I'm a computer science. I can program because I'm doing HTML. And I went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo originally for a computer science degree. And I lasted a year and a half. And it was awful. I am not a person that can learn to code, I think, in an academic environment or when everything is under theory. It was like the theory class that killed me. Um, and so I thought I hated programming. I switched to an art degree, became a designer. I was going to do product design, um, packaging design. And it wasn't until I, you know, six or so years later after I graduate college, I had this idea I wanted to work. Um, I wanted to be an (laughs) entrepreneur. And my husband was going through Y Combinator. And I was like, oh, that looks really fun. I want to become a startup founder. I want to run my own website. And I didn't know how to code. So I did this whole, I'm going to find a co-founder thing. Like everyone recommends you start, you know, start your company, find a co-founder, technical co-founder, technical co-founder. And I, you know, (laughs) I thought I was doing it the right way. And I kind of got quote, unquote, um, I'm not going to say totally internet famous, but I got internet famous in terms of developers because I wrote this long post about how I was trying to find a technical co-founder, everything I was trying to build for this original web app, which is still weddings related, but not what I've actually built. I put it on Hacker News and it got something like 500 upvotes in Hacker News. So then I had people... Um, Billion emails, and I narrowed it down to like a bunch of people that I did little projects with, and then from that I narrowed it down to this one person that became my technical co-founder. And I was like, I am doing this right, and I got a Y Combinator interview for the app idea that I had, and then everything exploded. <laughs> uh, and it was like, oh wait, this is actually not a person I want to found a company with. Um, we didn't really get along. The idea we didn't get that we didn't get into Y Combinator. Thank goodness, because then it would have been hard decisions. So it was at that moment where co- that co-founder and I split ways, and I'm like, well, do I do that again <laughs> or do I just learn how to code and do it myself? And I'm stubborn. So I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to learn to code and do it myself. So that's really what led me into um, doing that. I, I met my uh, my now husband and he's a really, uh, he does a lot of Python. Um, he's the author of one of the big Python um, uh, open source uh, it's URL, URL lib three. Um, it's part of requests. So he's like really big into the Python world, and haven't I met? And he's like, "Well, you were doing Java before, and you hated it. So let's talk about Python, because <laughs> Python is a lot better. And it is. It was much easier to use. And so that's how I got into working with Python." And then the big thing about me learning how to code, long story, is that when I was in school, it was theory and we were working on the command line and everything was kind of like you make something and it's working because you type something into your command line and it gives you the expected output. And that simply does not feel real to me and it's not very interesting when I was learning to code and I built my first web app and I can see it in the browser and I built it using Django and it was all, you know, just using Django's framework. It was like this giant moment. Like, Oh, this is, this is real. This is interesting. Um, I'm building a website, but it has, you know, a registration system and it has all this, like it has a database, you know? So seeing things real in the browser was kind of this, like this big uh, moment for me. So uh sure. For sure. Yeah, I, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. I know I totally can relate to that. Um so okay, so last year you launched Hello Web mm-hmm. App which is uh, a project to teach Python and Django to designers and non-programmers. Why did you start Hello Web App?
1: So that's exactly why is cuz that the whole story about seeing things in the browser and making it real to me, you know, I'm like cool, you know, I can finally do this and I uh, I went through a lot of Django tutorials and I f- I figured out how to build this, you know, slowly but surely as I built Wedding Lovely, how to work with Django and how I work with programming. And as I became a better programmer, I was like, well, why was it taught this way? Once everything clicked in my brain, I'm like, I don't understand why it was taught this way when it could be taught so-and-so way, aka in the browser. A lot of tutorials all are just command line. Um, and I know that's a lot out you know, people who are used to using command line and I am now, that's super easy. And, you know, things feel quote unquote real. But for someone who's coming into building their first web app and they have experience in HTML and CSS, they want to see it as a website. So I wrote this book. After I figured out how to code, I wrote this book because this didn't exist yet. And I didn't understand why it didn't exist yet. And I wish that it did. Like, I wish I had that book when I was learning code because things would have gone a lot faster.
0: Hmm. So... We had Lynn Clark from Code Cartoons on our show recently, and Mm. she makes these very descriptive cartoon representations of software concepts. So as you've been creating Hello Web App, how important have you found visualizations and illustrations to be?
1: You know, I'm going to say I actually gloss over a lot of concepts. Uh, (laughs) My goal is to like, hey, I'm going to help you build a web app in the browser. And when they can see how things work, I don't explain what a model view controller is. Um, on, to be fair, I probably still can't explain it myself. Uh, but
0: no, I join can... the club. Seriously. <laughs> no, like, honestly, totally. I, I, yeah. I, I don't understand model view controller. And
1: the thing that bugs me is that, again, tutorials, it's like these people who know understand all of these terms, they feel like that's important information to impart when it's not. It's a very confusing Um A lot of people will be like, this is how you do this. And these are all the little things you should know about how it's working behind the scenes. And I just say, okay, you know, the behind the scenes stuff, not going to deal with it. I'm not even going to talk about it because it's distracting. I'm just going to show you how to do it. And then ideally after running Hello Web App and you have this website and you're excited, then you can move on to some of these traditional tutorials that will go into how it works. But i I don't talk any concepts, really. Um, I just kind of just say, this is a file and you can copy, you know, you, the URLs when it comes to regex. I'm like, you know what, just copy and paste these lines. <laughs> it looks really complicated, but you can see the pattern and you can continue building your web app without understanding quite how it's working just yet. So you can see how, you know, you can get some results and then you can go in and explore what regex is, how, why that... the. Um, your URLs file is is formatted that way, uh, and explore further.
0: What have you learned that is, uh, you know, what what didn't you expect about uh, about teaching non programmers to code that maybe they have less trouble with than you anticipated, or they have more trouble with than you anticipated?
1: Well, the thing that bugs me the most, and I guess I did anticipate it, but it's the worst part about teaching someone how to code is that Django makes things a lot easier, but in order to start working with Django, you need to install Python. And that's still not a fun process. There's so many things that can go wrong. Like people on Linux computers and Mac computers have a little easier time, but there's still some things that you have to work on. Like with Mac, you have to, um, uh, I'm blanking on it, but there's the other big, uh, the big, apple thing you have to install in order to let you homebrew well yeah there's that and then there's um, uh, all those things you know and that's the worst part is because someone says comes in and wants to learn how to code and sits down and if you can get through the installation process they're like super excited and moving forward but there's no way of making that installation process at the moment a lot easier i wish there was a way that i could just like you know, create a program where someone can press a button and it solves everything for them behind the scenes. And then they can start working on Hello Web App. But you can't. You have to, like, you have to use the command line to get homebrewed. You have to use the command line um, to do all these things. And if you're on a Windows computer, it's even worse because Windows just decides to make everything way harder. So I kind of anticipated that was going to be a problem. And it's been a bigger problem than I even thought is going to be. Um, So I'm still working on that.
0: (laughs) So we should shift back to talking about design. You are giving a talk at O'Reilly's Fluent Conference about design for non-designers, as we discussed. Mm -hmm. So what is the focus of that talk?
1: It's really just, you know, it's the same thing with the books. And I'm actually writing a book on this. I have, you know, two books about learning how to code. And my third book will be teaching design to non designers like i have a coding book teaching code to non Developers, uh, so these talks are really me kind of figuring out what was the best content. So just like the the coding thing, where I kind of gloss over a lot of nitpicky things, um, a lot of I've I read a lot of books on teaching design, and they start going in things like rhythm, and they start talking about the pieces of typography, and they start talking about the golden ratio. And I especially hate that because you know what? Just throw the golden ratio out the window. You don't need to worry about aligning things to the golden ratio and something that makes things work. So. None of that. It's none of that designy hullabaloo um, that you would get in, say, a design course. I mean, when I talk about color in the uh, in the talk, you know, there's things like I say, you know, the principles are really high level when you say, oh, make sure your colors are complementary. Well, what does that mean? Like I took an entire quarter when I was in college and on color theory. And that's all about like, what's a complementary color? And I can't teach that in a, you know, 30 to 40, 45 minute session. So for a color, it's there's websites like color lovers that people just vote on beautiful color schemes. And as a beginning designer, just go there. That's that's how I got the color scheme for my book. It's how I got the color scheme for every single um, of Wedding Lovely's properties. I'm a you know, a trained designer. I, I have a degree in it and there's no way I'm gonna spend the time figuring out what colors look together, look good together. I'm just gonna go to color lovers and pick something out from what other people say.
0: Okay, that is a super interesting hack and I am going to take advantage of that <laughs> the next time I'm designing a website the the colorlovers.com. Yeah. What are some other what are some other like artistic and design hacks that I, I hate using that word sometimes eh. but uh, you know the, the 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 what is the what are the 20% that you know non-designers or engineers can learn that will give them the 80% uh, of the value that you know, a a designer guest.
1: Yeah, um, for fonts, you know, Google Fonts is awesome because you can get nice looking fonts uh, on your website that, you know, so you don't have to use Georgia or Times. But you go to Google Fonts, you get overwhelmed by whatever 500 fonts they have. So there's a lot of people, um, there's many different websites that do this and they're just dedicated to Google fonts and they're dedicated to taking a couple font combinations and showing them in a very designy way how beautiful they look together. So I, I believe the website is called Beautiful Web Type. and I think if you Google for that, you'll find it. But I think if you Googled for just Google font combinations or Google font design, you can find these websites where someone just takes these free fonts that look great online and they built this like, Little beautiful way of showing how these two fonts looked good together. And if you're designing something, you can go to these web pages, scroll down until you see something that particularly appeals to you. Um, and you can know that they're guaranteed to look good because you're seeing it in the wild and seeing it how it looked very designy. Um, and you can just grab those two Google fonts, which is free to use, and install your website, and you're done.
0: Interesting. Okay. So I want to close off with a question uh, just about kind of software culture and um working productively how can engineers learn to work harmoniously with designers
1: (laughs) i just came back from pi tennessee and one of the biggest themes there was empathy (laughs) you know having a lot of empathy for both sides of the equation helps a lot um how things work harmoniously you know one of the things I, i mentioned in my talk um is that everyone has a joke about the designer who gives the developer a mock-up and then the developer adds it in. And I have this happen in real life. And the designer's like, no, that's five pixels to the left. And the developer says, why does it matter? It's just five pixels. And when I talk about clutter, it's because designers are, they're, brains have been trained to see that clutter and they can see that something is a little bit off and they can you know they have the ability to point that out and see exactly what's going on whereas someone who is not design trained might look at that and be like that looks off and they can't explain why so what i want to say is you know when the designer says something probably does matter but those five pixels difference does matter that does matter you know um they're trying to see that clutter. They're trying to see how things are working well together. Um, and, you know, you know, everyone, like I said, makes that joke. And that's why it really bugs me. I'm like, no, no, seriously, make sure things are lined up. <laughs> Please listen to your designers. And they're not just being like weird and nitpicky. They see the things that other people might see but not be able to express. Um. You know, and otherwise just, you know, work well together or pick up some skills like I think the designers should have a little bit of coding ability. And it, that, again, helps with empathy when you can see the other side. Um, and I'm doing this talk because I think developers should have a little bit of design ability. You know, all of us, we all work online and there's so many things to learn and do. And it's kind of crazy to. Uh, But you can pick up, you know, the 20% that makes 80% 80 difference. Um, So, you know, both sides of the equation, people working well together, it's useful to see how the other person, what they do, um, make yourself a little more empathetic.
0: Okay, that sounds fantastic. Um, Well, Tracy, thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. Uh, It's been great talking to you about design. And I will be at Fluent Conference and I'll give you a t-shirt when I'm there. Yay. Awesome. Okay. Awesome.